Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. 13 is your lucky number if you listen to this Warner Archive Collection podcast because we have 13 additions to the Warner Archive Collection this week to talk about, as well as all sorts of other goodies, all things cinematic. Let's talk about the new additions to the Warner Archive Collection first. We've got a quartet of films from a very, very prolific director, Norman Torog. These four films are Lucky Night from 1939. The Hoodlum Saint from 1946, The Beginning or the End from 1947, and Please Believe Me from 1950. And we're going to talk a lot more about Norman Torag and those films in just a moment. We also have nine films from Paramount Pictures that are new to the Warner Archive collection that were available on DVD years ago have long been out of print and we're bringing them back in print through Warner Archives so that you can own them at a very reasonable price. So those films are Fancy Pants from 1950, Another Time, Another Place from 1958, Heller in Pink Tights from 1960, Oh What a Lovely Water from 1968, Darling Lily from 1970, Plaza Suite, also known as Neil Simon's Plaza Suite, from 1971, Hustle from 1975, Lipstick from 1976, and Pretty Baby from 1978. Those are nine back-in-print Paramount titles, all of which are going to be discussed in detail. So let's get the discussion underway and start with Norman Torok. Now, Norman... And I'd like to call him Norman because I feel very familiar with his work. You should be because because this man worked prolifically right up until the 1960s. His really is a remarkable career. Started off as a performer, then started directing very young. He was 20, making shorts, and then won a Best Directing Oscar when he was like 30, 31 years old. And, you know, his career stretched from the 20s until the 60s. He directed Elvis. That's right. He closed out his career. He was the most Elvine director. He was one of the last contract directors at MGM. He worked at many other studios before MGM. And uh, when he got to MGM in the 1930s, he pretty much stayed there until the 60s. And like a lot of long-term producers and uh, a couple of directors... He was very comfortable there, and the studio, not unlike Richard Thorpe, the studio would give him any kind of genre, and he can fill the bill. One of my favorite musicals, which is available from Warner Archive, Broadway Melody of 1940, he was the director of that. But the films we're going to talk about today are not musicals, and um, they vary in style in every way possible because they go from delightful comedy to offbeat drama to very serious drama, almost docudrama. So the first film we're going to talk about is Lucky Night from 1939. And I should mention that all these Norman Torag films have been remastered for your viewing pleasure. Lucky Night from 1939 stars two perennial favorites from the MGM, more stars than there are in the heavens canon, Robert Taylor, the original, and Myrna Loy. 
We haven't really done a lot on this podcast and discussing all these films to call out the accidental marriage genre. <laughs> That's true. Because <laughs> I'm watching it this movie, true. I was like, no, this is a real thing. And I'm not saying that in a critical way, but I've given away a tiny bit of the plot. That's what made <laughs> That's the night the, lucky. Right. It was the culmination of really one big lucky night. Right. Myrna Lloyd plays an heiress who is out for adventure and self-discovery. She wants to prove herself that she doesn't need Papa approval. Right. Sounds like anything. it happened one night to me. Right. She's out there to cut the purse strings and she runs into a charming penniless man on a park bench. On a park bench and then they have a great run of luck which ends up with marriage. All in one night. It becomes a comedy of, oops, now we have to live with what we did. Mm -hmm. But the run-up in luck is almost like a um, Rube Goldberg-like contraption of fortune. You're definitely on their side. Robert Taylor especially was down on his heels. Mm -hmm. And uh, it started with a coin on the ground, really, and uh, worked its way up to marriage. Now, this film comes from the year 1939 when there really weren't any impressive films coming out of Hollywood. <laughs> no, actually, just the opposite. Of course, as we've discussed many times, especially recently, it was really Hollywood in the studio system at its apex right before the dawn of World War II. This is a probably less known MGM film from 1939, yet boasts a terrific cast, big stars, great story. It was such an amazing year that if this film had been made, let's say 1937 maybe, it would be better known. Mm -hmm. But trying to uh, grasp for space in 1939 was not easy for the studios no less the films made at those studios. So this is a movie that deserves to be better known, and that's why we're bringing it to not only its DVD debut, but its home video debut. Moving on to our next film from 1946, we have three MGM favorites, but they're not known for having worked together. And I don't think they worked together before or after, and someone could correct me on that. But you have the great William Powell, you have Esther Williams, and you have Angela Lansbury in The Hoodlum Saint. And this is Esther after she became a star in a rare, non-musical, non-swimming performance. William Powell plays a newspaper man who has gone overseas to serve in World War One. comes back and gets treated with the disdain that all veterans did, faces the mini-depression before the Great Depression, and then it's a rags-to-riches-to-rags redemption tale. It's 1946. It's after World War II, but reflecting on a tough period, actually. It's happening in Europe and in America now. William Powell, in this period, he's not playing like the dapper William Powell. No, this is, he's older, and it's not worth skipping over the fact that the next year would be the last entry in the Thin Man series, and he would soon leave MGM after a tenure of 13, 14 years. The following year, he would have one of his biggest hits in Life with Father, mm -hmm. which he made here at Warner Brothers, but his film career was starting to wind down as he was getting older, and he retired after making Mr. Roberts in 1955, where you saw him with white hair, and he played Doc, and he lived probably another, I think, 20 years or so in retirement. One of the most beloved leading men, and this is kind of the beginning of the end <laughs> of his tenure at MGM. But I, I love this movie. Angela Lansbury is wonderful in it. 
Esther is wonderful in it. She proved her acting chops, and I have mentioned this probably on the podcast before, but she was a dear friend of mine. She passed away recently, not too long ago, about two, three years ago. During the many years that we were friends and we spent a lot of time talking, she often referred to this as one of her favorite movies because she loved all the swimming spectaculars, but she was very proud of the fact that she did some films that showed her talents as an actress that didn't rely on her beauty alone or her swimming skills alone or, you know, singing or, or what have you. Great supporting cast in this film. I mean... I prefer the Warner Brothers mugs, but the MGM <laughs> mugs were pretty good, yeah, too. Yeah, bad, yeah. You have Frank McHugh. Uh, James Gleason has a very substantial part in it, and he's great as always. Rags Ragland. I mean, there's a whole crew of Damon Runyon characters that follow the, the William yeah. Powell character and, around. And then to your good point, we should mention that, of course, Frank McHugh got his big start here at Warner Brothers. Then he went to MGM. So again, another home video debut, DVD debut, and remastered for the occasion, The Hoodlum Saint. Now, I have a question about this next film. Oh, yes. Was this on VHS? I'm almost sure that we never put it out. But it's sort of an odd duck in terms mm-hmm. of programming. It's I mean, very educational. Well, any film that has something that starts before the MGM Lion. Right. And there is a little bit of a prologue that explains that this film is being put in a time capsule for audiences of the 25th century to know what happened during the 20th century. Just in case, you know. It's been, you know, uh, 60 plus years since this movie was made, almost 70 years. But we're still quite a ways from the 25th century. (laughs) This is dealing with a very sobering, serious subject. And this film was actually released in early 1947, but made in 1946, only about a year or so after the dropping of the atomic bomb. And it's a historical recreation. I mean, it's very much a docudrama. Yes, they're actors, but it's being done in a documentary style. And it was made with the cooperation of a lot of the people that were involved with the Manhattan Project. And and this kind of film we're much more familiar with today. Yes. But this form is pretty unique. For the time, time, this was groundbreaking. So again, Norman Torog, hats off to Norman. Because this is a film that really had not been... we You know, we talked about some MGM docudramas mm-hmm. about, I don't want to say lighter fare, but Trader Horn and uh, Eskimo. That was about, you know, different cultures and, and different parts of the globe. But this is dealing with a phenomenon that changed the world. Cur- current events. This and is it a was current events w- film. Literally ripped from the headlines, but done in a way that was not at all sensationalistic, but provocative and, of course, still relevant in the questions that it asks and the issues that it raises. So it is a docudrama presentation of the Manhattan Project, the development of the atomic bomb, and the results of that. We should mention the cast for the film because it's pretty great. Of course. Brian Dunleavy playing a general. Tom Drake. Not a professor. Hume Cronin, Robert Walker, uh, Audrey Totter, and uh, Hurt Hatfield. You know, very, you know, people that, you know, over Dorian Gray, the guy should watch this movie. Mm -hmm. This is exactly why he resented Dorian Gray because he got typecast because of that movie. And this shows that he was quite a versatile and talented actor. 
Although it hasn't been available before on home video, it's been shown on television umpteen times. And right. I mean, this has was never been out of view. Right. And also was very popular as a classroom rental title mm -hmm. in uh, the 16 millimeter mm -hmm. days. Yep. This, again, for a uh, Norman Torag film, not only is it unique among the films of its time, but it's unique in his au revoir. Oh, yeah. It? It's far more, well, it's more austere and serious than almost any film. MGM ever made. Because the next film <laughs> is a total 180 in terms of sense and tone and really, I would say, more typical Torah. And I'm going to use the word romp. This is a romp and the person leading the romp is the lovely Deborah Carr, as they would say in the promotion of her first MGM movie, The Hucksters, rhymes with star. Deborah Carr is the leading lady and Please Believe Me is the film, made in 1949, released in 1950. This is a delightful romp. It's not a triangle, it's a three-pointed square. I mean, I'd say a three-pointed square is a brilliant, <laughs> I love that. Well, so, so Deborah Carr has come into an inheritance, but it's not quite what she thinks it is. And she's English, so she's going to Texas to collect her inheritance. Her ranch. And on her way, she takes a cruise ship where she meets three eligible bachelors who are all pursuing her, her ranch, or some combination thereof. And there are three very impressive actors. So Robert Walker, Mark Stevens, and Peter Lawford. Peter Lawford is hysterical in this film. He was a really good comedian. Yes. And he was a very funny guy, and I think you can figure out how he became part of the Rat Pack, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and fit in with Sinatra and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis, who obviously had very buoyant senses of humor, but Peter Lawford didn't always get to show his humorous side. And it's probably films like this that led to him being cast as Nick Charles right. in the Thin Man television series right, that yeah. would come uh, his way at MGM in 1957. But all the gentlemen in this film are, are delightful. And there's uh, Jake Harrell Nash and uh, James Whitmore are also in it playing a couple of guys from the far side of the lot. Uh, James Whitmore, who plays mobster valet to Robert Walker, is particularly charming. Also interesting to note, one of the producers was Val Luton. I think this was his only, this was am I right? his last film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think he died he, like a year later. I think later. he had a heart attack and died at a very young age. But he had left RKO and, and come to MGM to produce. And uh, this, is this is very unlike the cat people. But it's also very unlike his other non horror films that yeah. he did at RKO, Mademoiselle Fifi and Youth Runs Wild. We see this all the time where artists are pigeonholed as being able to do only one thing. And I think he wanted to show that he was a, an able producer and he made a delightful comedy, yeah. hired a great director, or oh, the yeah. studio did. Let's not forget that Dory Sherry was head of production at MGM at this time. And, mm -hmm. He may have had some influence in bringing Val Luton over. I read that uh, they had made this for Miss Carr herself. Oh, yeah. And and uh, he was very insistent on that. But it's, again, interesting to think, like, what kind of uh, career turn he could have made oh, sure. after this. Yeah. That wraps up the Norman Torog Quartet, who are now appearing at the Catalina Barn. <laughs> no, the four Norman Torog films that are new to DVD uh, that we're bringing your way. And now we go to Paramount titles, back in print, back on DVD. And we have nine of them, which span from 1950 all the way to the late 70s. So let's get the discussion underway. We'll talk about these 
briefly, but they're all very notable and important. The first of them is Fancy Pants from 1950. This is a remake of the famous comedy Ruggles of Red Gap, and this is Bob Hope and Lucille Ball. Robert Hope. He's credited as Robert. Well, that's part of the joke, actually. (laughs) But uh, Bob Hope and Lucille Ball made several films together, and they loved working together, and of course they did a lot of television together in the later years. But uh, my brain is telling me that they made four features together. They may have made more. They're terrific in this, and this is in dazzling Technicolor. So Lucy's red hair is in... Very red. That's why they called her Technicolor Tessie. Lucy essentially wins Bob Hope in a poker game, and he is an American who's pretending to be an English butler, and they're in England. And so through a series of complications, he then is passed off as a baron or an, a nobleman. Their chemistry on screen together is irrefutable. They're great. The film is very funny, and the film has also been one of these perennial favorites because yeah. of them. Yes. It's never been far away, but the DVD has not been available for a very long time, so we've this put it back in print, and now you can have fancy pants in its fancy Technicolor outfits to delight and amuse you. The next film is not amusing at all because it's a very serious drama and Mm -hmm. it is a heart-tugging soap opera that has a leading lady, Lana Turner, as its star, probably at the height of her career after leaving MGM. She had just been nominated for an Academy Award for the leading lady in Peyton Place the year before. And uh, this is also around the time that she was involved in a scandal. Even before the scandal, the fact that she was involved with Johnny Stompanato was creating a scandal by itself. So this film is a lantern production, Mm. as it says in the credits, which means that her production company was involved. So she was becoming a producer. And I don't know what her actual birth year was, but if we go by what we've been told, she was 35 when she made this movie. Her co-stars in this movie are Glynis Johns, who had already made a name for herself in the British cinema and in American films like The Court Jester. And then there is a young chap in this movie who made enough of an impression to get a leading role in a Walt Disney film the following year, (laughs) Darby O'Gill and the Little People. But it was about three years after that that he got a very leading role as James Bond, 007, shaken, not stirred. Of course, we're talking about Sean Connery. So this is a love triangle story with a war backdrop that is very different from anything else. And I defy anybody to watch this movie and not get a little misty. Yeah, it's it's a three hanky plus a social drama. Lana Turner tugs at your heart, but so does Glynis Johnson. She's so sweet. And my big question, of course, is this was in VistaVision. Yes, motion picture high fidelity. And it was an interesting choice because it is kind of a weepy. Well, the thing is that everything Paramount made, mm-hmm. I believe, with rare exception, virtually everything they filmed, whether it was a color spectacle or a black ah. and white drama or comedy, was in the VistaVision process. And this is one of those films. And VistaVision was designed in such a way that it gave greater depth of field. 
it did increase production costs somewhat, but Paramount was very committed to it. And I don't think they abandoned the process until about two or three years later. They were really committed to it. It fits the screen perfectly, oh, well, 16 by 9. Right. Well, the 185 screen was the ideal aspect ratio for VistaVision. But it was designed so that you could do it at almost any aspect ratio. That was what their selling point was to theaters at the time. So, you know, you could make it fit any size. But Paramount was the last of the studios to eventually, you know, take a deep breath and give in to what then became basically Panavision, the anamorphic lens. They really were married to their process, and uh, films that were shot in VistaVision have an amazing look to them, and the process became used thereafter for decades for the use of special effects. Because it was filmed sideways, right? right? So it, it had more negative space, right? like IMAX would. Right. But, but it, of course, yeah. it was the equivalent of two, two frames. traditional motion picture right. frames, so that meant film stock was a lot more expensive, so it definitely drove up the budgets. The film goes from the city to the country, and when you get to the country, that's when the Vista Vision really starts paying off. You get these wonderful shots of the uh, hills of Southwest. So to go into the plot in detail would be to spoil things, but let's just say love triangle, all good intended people. This is a love story Mm -hmm. and also a story of self-sacrifice and people overcoming adversity. And you definitely will need multiple handkerchiefs for this movie. I remember seeing it years ago and enjoying it a great deal. Next, we have director George Cukor at the helm. And when he's at the helm, the results are usually wonderful. And in this case, it's no exception, as Sophia Loren stars in Heller in Pink Tights from 1960. A theatrical Western, a Western theatrical. With very, very stylized approach to... Yeah, the production design is quite something. And it's based on a Louis L'Amour. Louis L'Amour, yeah. So, you know, it's got its Western pedigree, but it is about a theatrical troupe. This film has a cult following. It's Um, understandable. I mean, visually, it's it's very, very stunning. And the plot is very sort of comedia, only it's the Old West. Sophia Loren, we've talked about her before, she excelled at both comedy and drama. She did a lot of wonderful comedies, of course, in in Italy with Marcello Mastroianni. But we also talked about it started in Naples with Clark Gable, which yeah. we released last year. She was a firecracker in a pistol, and this is a a costume piece, and uh, it puts her in a very different setting than we're used to seeing her in. But, but she is paired up with Anthony Quinn. Which yeah. Is, so mm-hmm. it sort of feels in Great some ways cast. familiar because oh, absolutely. It, it feels almost like a European-style movie, you know. And Margaret O'Brien. Oh, yes. Grown-up, yeah. 20-year-old Margaret O'Brien is, for me, the surprise in the film because they definitely, as seeing so many of her films, seeing her growing up and the discomfort that her budding sexuality causes in this film, it's wonderful. Well, she she was over 21. She was yeah. she was very much an adult Playing by a this character, time. yes. She had gone in and out of the acting profession after she grew up. She would perform for a while and then she would retire. Uh-huh. And then she'd perform and she'd retire. I remember one of her comebacks in the early 70s, she appeared on the Marcus Welby episode. Oh. But it's always delightful to see her on the screen. She's always wonderful. And she's wonderful in this film. And this, again, is 
a film that has a unique cult following, as does the next film, which is an yes. adaptation of a British musical. Oh, what a lovely war. And oh, how wonderful Richard Attenborough is. This is a, a World War One film that is performed via... World War One is depicted via the popular music hall songs of mm -hmm. the era right. by a cast of anyone who was anyone in Britain. Well, this was a hit on the stage and the film adaptation posed challenges yeah. <laughs> because to make this cinematic was no easy feat. But they did a great job and the film was obviously much more popular in Britain than it was here. Yeah. But it was appreciated here for its unique qualities. And uh, there still to this day, almost 50 years later, there is a good, strong cult following for and, Oh, What a Lovely War. And this is Attenborough's first directorial film, I too. And so, this is yes. So I could see how this would be something very special to him. Oh, absolutely. Because it definitely is a piece of art. You know, it's like artistically challenging. Dan, can you share with us some of the people that yeah. appear in this movie? Dirk Bogard has a very central role, but um, if you're a fan of British theater, the three titans of it are all in this. Olivier, Gilles Good, and Richardson. Yes. But you also have Michael and Vanessa Redgrave, John and Juliet Mills, you know, family affairs. Susanna York, Maggie Smith, Phyllis Calvert is Kenneth Moore. In addition to uh, Attenborough directing, the uh, writer Len Dayton produced it. This is almost like the English version of Ziegfeld Follies. Yeah. You know, oh. like everybody wanted to right. have a little part in it. It was an all-star affair. So it was quite a remarkable hit in the UK, but it did have an audience here in the US as well. And now you can own it and have it in your library once again if you've been trying to find it and have been unable to do so. Speaking of World War One, that brings us to our next film, which has a very interesting backstory to it. This is Blake Edwards' film, Darling Lily, which was released in 1970, starring his wife, Julie Andrews. And I believe they got married either right before or during the making of this movie. It was This was their first professional collaboration. And Rock Hudson was the leading man in this movie. And this film had a very troubled production history. And the version that is available on the DVD is... Blake Edwards' director's cut oh, of I the film. That. He re-edited the film for this DVD release. And that's why there are so many deleted scenes on the DVD because he wanted to revisit the work and make the film the way he said he had originally intended. Now, Robert Evans was the head of production at Paramount at the time this was yes. made. And it was the friction between the two of them to get this movie made that was the basis for another Water Archive release, <laughs> which is now available on DVD, that ironically, it was produced by Lorimar, and that's how we own it, but it was released theatrically in the United States by none other than Paramount Pictures. <laughs> a very strange turn of events. So the very <laughs> studio that it mocked and the film that it mocked because SOB is a thinly veiled kind of a gestalt look by Blake Edwards as at his experience working for the studio and making Darling Lily and putting all of his 
efforts into making a movie with his wife only to have it fail miserably at the box office. And your appreciation for Robert Vaughn's performance in SOB takes on a much bigger level when you realize the background. On its own, this is a remarkable film. Uh, Julie Andrews is wonderful in it. And special notice should be given to the score by Henry Mancini, who is a frequent collaborator with Blake Edwards. It's very rare that Blake Edwards made a film without Henry Mancini doing the music. And uh, there's a song written for this movie called Whistling in the Dark, which is really a, a beautiful moment in screen history, I think. And it's a World War I story, and Julie Andrews plays a spy. A Matahari. And we should mention, speaking of the music, that we have lyrics by Johnny Mercer. Uh, yes, she's a Matahari. She is an agent after her, her own... Um, she's after The Rock, but The Rock gets her. Yeah, that's a good way to put Not it. Not to be confused with The Rock. Her uh, mixed loyalties are on the line. So it's a fascinating moment in film history that has been controversial. It was controversial before it was released. It was released under controversy. Then SOB <laughs> followed 11 years later, and people were still talking about it. Now it's 45 years later, and you can see the results for yourself when you buy Darling Lily. And uh, they have a title song in this movie that was intended to follow in the footsteps of songs like Hello, Dolly, and Mame, but huh. uh, didn't quite become the top of the pop charts in the same year that you had the soundtrack from Woodstock being the number one album. So the times, they were changing. But Darling Lily is really quite delightful, and if you're a Blake Edwards fan, Julie Andrews fan, Rock Hudson fan, or a Henry Mancini fan, this is must-have. And the deleted scenes provide uh, an insight into what Blake Edwards intended versus what was filmed and shot. It's really great for fans of cinema to oh, yeah. learn about the filmmaking process. The next film had no troubles in its production. It was based on a Broadway hit and became a hit on the big screen as Walter Matthau starred with many leading lights of the entertainment era in the time, 1971's Plaza Suite, and again, this is adapted from a hit Neil Simon Broadway comedy. Uh, and this is when Neil Simon could do no wrong. Everything he did, the guy virtually everything money. he did, was a <laughs> uh, home run out of the park. This is um, three shorter three segments. Three separate stories. Yeah, separate right. stories within the same hotel suite, which is an interesting construction that I don't think anybody else could have made a major motion picture with. And he actually did it again for the screen a few years later at Columbia with California Suite. But what's interesting with uh, Plaza Suite is it's the same hotel room, it's three different stories, three different yeah. styles of drama, but the same leading man playing three different characters against three very different leading ladies. And you can tell how this was crafted for the stage because it has a very proscenium feel to it. Mm -hmm. And yet they did a great job opening it up so it feels cinematic at the same time. And of course you get to see the iconic plaza going in and out. The plaza itself is a character. And so it's Walter Matthau and the three leading ladies are Maureen Stapleton, Barbara Harris, and Lee Grant, and we have a story of love on the rocks, a story of love rekindling, and a story of coming to grips with middle-aged and losing a daughter. And in that cast, you have three leading ladies who are titans of the stage as well as the screen. And of course, Walter Matthau was by then 
a big movie star, but he also had his roots in the theater. So you've got the best of both worlds, the best of Broadway and the best of Hollywood in this great motion picture. And the fact that it's been out of print for so long is quizzical, but we solved the riddle by making it available, and we hope you'll enjoy Neil Simon's Plaza Suite. Next, we take a very sharp left turn at Albuquerque, even though there's no Albuquerque in the making of this movie. But this was a big box office hit in 1975, starring Burt Reynolds and Catherine Deneuve. This is Hustle, and this was an action-packed, adventure that was one of the biggest hits of its time. It's definitely a well, I'll call it a 70s neo-noir. It's definitely a neo-noir. It holds up. This is like the epitome of 70s gritty crime movie. Uh, Burt's really good in it. The film doesn't shy away from an ability to explore a more adult, harder-edge sensibility. This was a very big hit in its time. Burt Reynolds was one of the biggest movie stars of the era. Later that year, he would appear in a movie that didn't do so well at another studio, but his flops were outweighed by his hits. Yeah. And Hustle was a big hit, and then Smokey and the Bandit and Hooper would Super follow. Hits. And all through the 70s, his career really was on the ascendancy. And this is three years after the Cosmo centerfold that changed the world. And <laughs> Bert could do no wrong. And it's not a comedy, but it's a lot of fun to no. look back 40 years yeah. and see what L.A. was like with a very hard-edged action film that never stops. It doesn't slow nope. down for a moment. It, it's a great model and not really overused or overquoted. You know, there yeah. are certain 70s action movies uh, of this type that just people constantly refer to. This deserves a, kind of a step up in the lexicon, I think. Now, the next film is uh, from 1976, and this deals with a very serious subject, and uh, it was controversial at its time because it talked about something that people didn't want to talk about at the time. So it was a brave film, and this is Lipstick from 1976. It starred Margot Hemingway, who at the time was a top fashion model, and this is one of her few acting roles. And uh, she plays a rape victim. This is so timely now because people are talking about this again. It's about consent, but you witness the crime and there is a trial. You are so emotionally taken through the steps. It's very, very tough stuff. And I think it was a very brave film for its time, and it still holds up today. It and really Bancroft does. plays a attorney in this mm-hmm. film, and so she was kind of like the acting core for the film. And then you have Margot Hemingway's younger sister, Marielle, making her screen debut, and she plays an important role in the film, and then three years later would go on to give an incredible performance in Woody Allen's Manhattan. But uh, this was the film that brought her to people's attention. And uh, it was not a box office smash at its time. It wasn't the kind of thing that people were anxious to run and go see because it was very, very controversial and very painful for some people to have to face as it is today. I think that this picked up its audience probably on cable. Like this is definitely something that played on HBO. And and this is just when HBO was beginning. Yeah. It does not shy away from the 
difficult subject matter. And speaking of difficult subject matter, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> the next film and the last of these Paramount films created enormous controversy when it came out, and w I don't think it would be made today. I don't I, think it uh, could nah, be made today. Nah. Uh, this is Louis Mao's film Pretty Baby, starring Susan Sarandon and Brooke Shields, and uh, this deals with a very sensitive subject matter. It's set in a bordello, and Brooke Shields' character is basically an underage... Prostitute. Yes. Keith Carradine plays E.J. Balak, who is, is a real-life historical figure who is noted for his photographs of prostitutes in New Orleans, and this depicts a moment in Balak's life where he meets a young woman, Susan Sarandon, who has a 12-year-old daughter, and it sort of depicts what's going on there. People were horrified that Brooke Shields' mother would let, let her, her daughter yeah. be in this movie, just as there were issues around Jodie Foster being in Taxi Driver. Yeah. It deals with those subjects, I think, in a pretty mature way. Absolutely. Um, yeah, this is not exploitation. This is not no, an exploitation. Not at all. Nonetheless, there's deeply troubling things in it. However you feel about watching this movie, you will have a reaction. And it will be, it's strong. It holds up. And it's representative of the times. The 70s were a decade where filmmakers were taking risks. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't about comic book heroes. Nope. And it wasn't about special effects. It was about storytelling. And especially a European filmmaker yes. brought a very different sensibility. This was French filmmaker Louis Mal working in America, in English. You know, and it was, in a it very, was very specific different. time and place. Mm -hmm. And like you really captured this bordello. Like you felt the heat in New Orleans. Right. Like it, it's difficult subject matter, but it's handled in an artistic and appropriate way. And so we've certainly run the gamut with these nine Paramount films yeah. because they are, you know, from the, the lighter golden age of Hollywood into the darker times of the late 70s. But all of them have a place and an audience, and it's our job to bring these movies to you and make them available. And we're very happy that these are all now available from the Warner Archive Collection. So that's 13 new editions as we are ever increasing our offerings. And now for something completely <laughs> different to make another Monty Python reference. We are involved with a documentary that is being made available by Warner Brothers Home Entertainment in a few weeks that is about another company that we have no connection to called Canon Films. But this film is called Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films. And it is an amazing documentary look at Canon, which was an independent filmmaking company that was a small company that got purchased by two filmmaking friends from Israel, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus. The original Canon was a small American company that had made films like Joe with Peter mm -hmm. Boyle, and Golan and Globus bought Canon and turned it into something completely different. And it was a wild factory that would go with the flow of trying to get respect. Both these guys really loved making movies. 
They really loved Hollywood. They wanted to get respect, but they were also desperately trying to get the money to finance these movies and get stars involved with them. And how they did it and the stars they created themselves, Lou Ferrigno and Hercules. Oh, and yeah. Giving a new career to Charles Bronson, building up stars like Jean-Claude Van Damme, mm -hmm. Chuck Norris. You learn all about how these films came to be and how the filmmakers ran their company in a very, very unique way. And the only way I can speak about this film is to say that if you love movies and you're knowledgeable about this part of cinema history, or even if you don't know about this part of cinema history, you'll learn about it by seeing this movie. What I love about the documentary is it has a good sense of humor. It's one of the funniest documentaries I've ever seen. The people who agreed to participate in it are people who did films for Canon and they talk about the Canon people. And even if they didn't have good experiences when they made the films. They have good anecdotes. They have good <laughs> stories to tell. And there's just a jovial sense of fun. This movie was made with obvious affection for its subject matter. And it is a delight from start to finish. And there were other people who tried to mimic Cannon's model, <laughs> and most of them didn't succeed, but these guys were in the right time at the right place, and most of their films were aimed at getting a big popular audience. And they're actually looked upon with more respect now yes. than they were when they came out. So because of this, yes. this documentary is being released by Warner Brothers Home Entertainment, but there will also be Canon film collections that contain some of the highlights from Canon's brief but notable period of time yes. in cinema history. So George was saying this is going to be available on DVD or as part of a collection of a bunch of the Canon Canon. And it will also be available for digital download as yeah. an HD EST, or you can rent it VOD digitally. So there are many ways to see this documentary, but we heartily recommend it because it is a lot of fun, very interesting, and it's not your average Hollywood story. No. Uh, we've got one more quick mention, and then we're going to read a letter, and then we're done for this episode. And that quick mention salutes one of the proudest moments in Warner Brothers history when 40 years ago oh. the company released Sidney Lumet's great masterpiece of cinema, Al Pacino and John Cazale starring in Dog Day Afternoon which was released in 1975, just about 40 years ago at this very time. And uh, it is a great film. It is also a great New York film. Yes. And this new 40th anniversary release is available on Blu-ray with a documentary about John Cazale. You might know him from this film, or you might know him as Fredo in Godfather and Godfather 2. He had an ultimately very brief career because he died at a tragically young age. And I knew it was you as a documentary about him where all the people that knew him and loved him got together and made this documentary in 2009. And so Dog Day Afternoon and I Knew It Was You have been put together for the Dog Day Afternoon 40th anniversary release. 
available as a Blu-ray. If you don't already own this movie, this is the perfect opportunity to go and buy it. It wouldn't be a Warner Archive podcast without reading a letter, and we have a new letter today. We, we have a letter that found its way to our new floor. And let's talk about the address where people can send letters to the Warner Archive podcast. You can send your missives to Warner Archive Podcast, 3400 Riverside Drive, B160-4, Burbank, California, 91522. And this one comes from Philip, and he is in Rosedale, Queens. If the Warner Archive collection effort folded after its initial wave of releases, it would have had to be considered a successful project if only for the sole title of Pay or Die. Of course, there were many other notables, with my favorites including Never Too Late, El Condor, The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing, The Wild Rovers, Freebie and the Bean, Flap, Which Way to the Front, along with numerous others leading up to the ultimate music video movie, Erg, A Music War. I think I even blogged on the Warner Archive website a positive mention of Pay or Die after reading Joe Pederosoni's Oh, the, the Ernest Borgnine character's grandson was on the NYPD. I even purchased extra copies of it to forward to him, as well as one of the chiefs of Manhattan detectives. Now, being up to date with iPhone technology, I've been listening to your podcast and have to admit they've influenced me on some purchases I would have passed on otherwise. When I was listening to your Bowery Boys podcasts, I found myself almost chiming in with all of you because everyone sounded so youthful and energetic. It wasn't until you started dating yourselves by mentioning where you were when you saw certain movies and such, I realized you were around the same age as me. George said that he saw True Grit at Radio City Music Hall back in 1969, and so did I. Now, whenever I get the chance, I look over my MGM soundtracks CDs to see if he wrote the liner notes or did production work as he did with the box set and single disc versions of That's Entertainment. I am taking a deep breath as I write down this next question, which I see the answer a mile away, but I still ask Mr. Feltenstein, which do you prefer working with, (laughs) music or movies? I've never (laughs) thought about that. That's so weird. I've been grateful to be in the movie business since I got out of college and I've been working with old movies since then first theatrically and then the home video business but there was this opportunity that came to work with the soundtracks from our library and it was a little bit of a dual path where we did soundtracks in partnership with Rhino Records and I had the great good fortune of producing many of them writing the liner notes for many of them, and eventually learning about the technology and restoration of audio. So that is something that I would say is the films are a personal passion, certainly, but uh, my main frame of business. But I love music and I love movies. The home video business has always been my first primary passion. Home video is your business. I think that the music brings you a joy in a different way because you you don't have to do it. Exactly. And the other thing of it is, is that 21 years ago, it was 1994, when I was, I was the head of MGM UA Home Video at the time, came up with the idea of doing soundtrack albums with video cassettes and Laserdiscs from the MGM library of films that never had soundtrack albums before. And we would make those albums available only if you bought the cassette and CD combo or the Laserdisc and CD combo. And that's what led to what eventually became the Rhino 
joint venture on the soundtracks and and I moved with the you know from MGM to Time Warner and and to Warner Home Video and I'm very grateful to be here but the soundtracks are a very very important part of my life and I'm very proud of all those albums there were almost a hundred of them yeah and uh, I'm still working with them even today because Water Tower Music, which is now the record division of Warner Brothers, those folks are now re-releasing a lot of the albums that I produced at Rhino. I thought that that was very interesting because we've been talking uh, more and more about soundtracks here on the podcast, and you'll see some more stuff in our newsletters because they go hand in hand. Everything comes full circle because, you know, I developed a love for these uh, soundtrack albums growing up listening to them on LPs. And the songs were truncated and they sounded bad. Uh And when I was able to work on the albums, we were able to go back to the original masters and make them sound good and have the songs not be cut and make things that were stereo actually be stereo as opposed to fake stereo. So the fact that they are now at Water Tower Music releasing these albums on vinyl LPs is something I never anticipated. But you should know that Water Tower Music is re-releasing a lot of the classic MGM soundtrack material on vinyl. And then they're also involved in a lot of soundtrack material that relates to other content, like some of the Saul Zanz films. They're working with Concord Records on deluxe editions of those on vinyl. We'll be talking more about those next week. And in fact, we'll be reading more of this letter next week because we're running out of time. So when someone sends us a letter that's that good, and by the way, I was only nine years old when I saw True Grit at at Radio (laughs) City Music Hall, so I'm not that old, folks. But in any event, we thank you very much for sending in that letter, and we'll read more of it next week because there's so much more to read. So on that note, I'm George Feltenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. I'm the snarp. Thanks for listening, and look forward to the next Warner Archive podcast.